welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well. Hello. With this talk, we're going to be talking about a specific type of hair loss called lichen planopilaris. And I titled this talk, Cooling the Fire of Lichen Planopilaris, because on one hand, it is a physiologically inflammatory mediated process, but it also stimulates a lot of emotional and some social stigma that can be very, very distressing for patients and can sometimes sort of feed into the difficulty of handling this condition. In terms of disclosures for this talk, I have nothing to disclose. At the end of this talk, I'm hopeful that you guys will be able to identify the clinical signs of lichen planopilaris, also known as LPP. I'm hopeful that you'll be able to describe the autoimmune pathogenesis of lichen planopilaris to list some of the lifestyle factors and supplements that may be helpful in treating this condition, as well as to understand the role low-dose naltrexone may play in treating lichen planopilaris. Previous picture, you can see on the forehead these red scaly bumps. A lot of times we'll call it perifollicular accentuation or the perifollicular papules with scale. We can see this is the frontal variant, and, and we'll talk more about that, but we see the shiny white scalp with these scattered lonely hairs that are just kind of sticking up in, middle, in the middle of these swaths of scarred down skin. One of the things with this particular type is when we're looking at it, we can measure how far it goes back by specifically looking at where the sun damage ends. And in this patient, it's quite easy to see where she has this mottled brown pigment compared to the white, shiny, scarred down areas. It's also important to note that a lot of times this hair loss is associated with symptoms, usually burning, itching, or pain, and that those symptoms can be a sign of active inflammatory disease. So even if we see, like just, we don't see a whole lot if we hear patients talking about itching, burning, and stinging, there are some other types of scalp conditions that can be associated with these symptoms, but we really want to look carefully for this type of inflammation because if we can address it early, we, we hope to interfere with that scarring process, hope to interfere with the inflammation so that it doesn't progress to scarring. It's also important to note that about 20 to 25% of these patients will develop either cutaneous or mucosal lichen planus. So what does that look like? Lichen planus is characterized 
when it's on a cutaneous level, just on the skin, we talk about purple, pelagonal, papules, and plaques. And they can have a lot of different types of morphologies. So we see here on the left, this is a patient with fair skin where we see these raised purple plaques. It almost has this lacy white reticulated surface that would be different from something like psoriasis where we'd see scale. Typically with lichen planopilaris, we only see scale if there's extreme xerosis or dryness of the skin. In this lower picture with a patient who has a bit more pigment in their skin, we see this more purplish brown discoloration. We commonly see it on the wrists and ankles and sort of extending onto the hands and feet, but it can occur in other places as well. The mucosal lichen planus is characterized by these lacy white reticulated plaques and in the mouth, often the buccal mucosa is involved, but it's really important to ask patients with this type of hair loss if they're having oral or genital ulcers, sores, um, or in particular with a genital involvement, if there's a lot of extreme itching, that can all be a sign that they're having some cutaneous or mucosal lichen planus. So the variants, there are three main variants, two pretty common and one very uncommon. But the first one we'll talk about is the classic appearance. And this shows up as the, the, the name we use in dermatology is the footprints in the snow. And if you tell a dermatologist that this patient has a footprints in the snow pattern of scarring hair loss, that basically means the classic variant of lichen planopilaris. And as you can see on this top picture on the right, we've got these sort of irregularly shaped patches of hair loss. There's some erythema underlying it, which is a manifestation of that inflammation. In this lower picture, we're actually seeing the end result. Once that inflammation has led to scarring and the inflammation has burned out, we have these very shiny white patches that look like footprints in the snow. Frontal fibrosing alopecia, also known as FFA, is very common, and this is probably the variant that I see the most commonly in my practice. And this typically involves the frontal hairline. It can be diffuse involvement of the frontal hairline involving both the temporal and anterior scalp. And I've also seen many cases where it involves just that central frontal portion of the hairline with, with leaving the sides intact. For whatever it's worth, I also see patients who, it seems to burn out faster on the lateral anterior hairline and just seems to stay more active on that, that anterior frontal hairline. 80% of patients with this variant will eventually develop eyebrow involvement. So it's really important to look at the eyebrows and many patients will be getting eyebrow tattoos or using cosmetics to fill in their eyebrows. And so it's important to look carefully. Eyelash involvement is extremely uncommon, um, but you know that, that's just something to watch for too because that can be a sign of, of another type of hair loss that might be a, a part of the differential. This other variant, the Graham-Little-Picardi-Lausier syndrome, or GLPLS, is extremely uncommon. In that a search run in 2016 only found less than 50 cases described in the literature. This is a combination of a genetic predisposition and an autoimmune etiology. And we don't really know a whole lot about it because it is so rare, it's difficult to study it. 
but it is characterized by scarring hair loss of the scalp. It can be either, um, usually the classic variant, but can also be the frontal fibrosing alopecia variant. It tends to be a lot more extensive than what we'll see in the more typical variants. These patients also have non-scarring hair loss of the axilla and the groin. And then they get these spiky follicular-based papules on the body. When you do a biopsy of them, it actually looks like follicular lichen planus. So it's definitely in this same family, but not something we really have to worry too much about. So what causes lichen planopilaris? There are, we don't know a lot about it. There's a lot of areas that have yet to be investigated and we definitely have a long ways to go in terms of understanding it. But it is an autoimmune attack on the bulge region of the hair follicle. And the bulge region of the hair follicle is a very unique structure. Every hair follicle has a sebaceous gland attached to it or an oil gland attached to it. And it's typically called the pilosebaceous unit. Along with that oil gland, there's also a muscle called the erector pili muscle that inserts directly on the outer portion of the hair follicle. And this is the muscle that contracts when we get cold, giving us goosebumps. So it makes sense that we would be seeing these papules around the hair follicle if this, if this muscle insertion is involved. This particular portion of the hair follicle is the site where we see the highest density of follicular stem cells. So it also sort of explains why when we have a specific autoimmune attack on this specific region, we end up with scarring, whereas other autoimmune types of hair loss that do not involve this bulge region or this particular type of inflammation do not result in scarring. We know that beta fibroblastic growth factor and transforming growth factor beta appear to be involved and help stimulate the inflammation as well as fibroblast activation. And this PPAR gamma is peroxisome proliferator activated receptor gamma. It also appears to play a role in the destruction of this pilosebaceous unit leading to the fibrosis and scarring. The, we think that there's likely a genetic predisposition associated with an environmental trigger that will get it started. There's some evidence that it may be hormonally related as well. This typically presents around menopause. And even just 20 years ago when I was in my training, we really only saw this in postmenopausal women. However, I would have to say in the last five years or so that we have been seeing it much more commonly in our dermatology practices, not just me, but my colleagues as well. And we're seeing it in younger women as well as in men. And there's some thought that this is likely due to endocrine disruptors in our environment whether it's in the cosmetic products, personal care products that we use on the scalp or around the scalp, or if it's something in the food supply, in our food storage supply, there definitely seems to be something going on and we really don't know what it is at this point. There's also an increased risk of other autoimmune conditions with thyroid being the most common. And I bring this up because we'll talk about this again when we talk specifically about the role lotus naltrexone might play in helping treat or at least minimize the inflammation associated with this condition. The clinical course of this condition is highly unpredictable. It does not result in baldness, 
but it is impossible to predict how much a hair a person could lose. In the frontal fibrosing, sometimes you can have recession of the anterior hairline several inches. With the classic presentation, it can be very, very patchy. And if someone is young and has a lot of hair, it might be easy to cover that up. However, as people get older and we start seeing genetic pattern thinning overlaying this, it can become much harder to hide. And this is often the population that we're dealing with in women and men who are already experiencing some genetic pattern thinning and then have this on top of you know, already dealing with some thinning of their hair. It can be very, very distressing and cause a lot of emotional stress and distress. Our treatment goal really is to slow down the inflammation and to limit the extent of permanent damage. Because, you know, once we've got, once the scarring is there, there's no way to bring those hair follicles back. There's nothing that you can do to rebring, revitalize those hair follicles and the hair in that area. So what can we do about it? One of the things that I always, the places I always start with my patients, if they're open to it, is you know, really looking at their lifestyle. What can we do to optimize healthy immune function? Certainly diet plays a big role in that. High fiber, lots of plants, lots of antioxidants, low and simple carbohydrates. That helps keep a healthy, robust gut microflora and a healthy, robust mucus lining in the gut to avoid the leaky gut syndrome that can be associated with autoimmune issues. I also always recommend that patients go off of dairy for the first for the first reason is that dairy is very pro-inflammatory. And then secondly, dairy can stimulate hormone cascades that can lead to hormone dysregulation. We really don't know how that plays out. We have no dietary studies looking specifically at lichen planopilaris, but it is something that sort of just makes sense to help just, you know, just to minimize any impact that, that hormone dysregulation might be playing. Certainly, a lot of dairy cows are treated with exogenous hormones, but even those that are grass-fed, all organic, even the cleanest of the clean dairy, those cows are being asked to lactate 364 to 365 days a year. They might get a day off for calving, they might not, and that really stimulates their own natural hormones and kind of keeps them elevated and isn't really good for us to be taking in all of those excess hormones. Stress is also a big player when it comes to inflammation, but also hormone regulation. So it's really important to address sleep in particular. I think this is something that, especially when we're dealing with a sort of later middle age to older category of patients, many people are struggling with sleep. Perimenopausal period is very difficult on sleep to begin with. And it's just something to ask about and try to see what we can do to help optimize sleep for our patients so that their, you know, their adrenal glands don't get burned out and they don't have excess levels of cortisol, which can lead to the hormone dysregulation. Regular moderate exercise and meaningful social connections, um, mindfulness practices, those all can go a long way in helping optimize 
just general health overall, but also healthy immune function and healthy hormone levels. And again, I want to stress that we have no studies looking specifically at lifestyle and lichen planar pilaris. The allopathic treatment ladder that we have is somewhat limited and not at all ideal. And I, I threw this slide in here because I just wanted to stress to you how few patients in some of the sentinel studies that we base our recommendations on for treatment of lichen planopilaris are. So when we have limited lichen planopilaris, early or very limited, topical and intralesional potent steroids are the treatment of choice. And we look at the evidence backing this up, then one of the main studies looked at 128 patients, so not a high number. 54 um, had a response to topical in the intralesional steroid. 30 patients, about 50% had a response. So this is by no means something that will help all patients, but it definitely is something that can be really important. As we go through the slide and I talk about some of these treatment options, I also want to say that it's really common and that patients end up stacking treatments so that they may, they're going to be doing more than one. Again, because this is progressive and leads to scarring, once the scarring is there, we can't reverse it. We do want to take the patient's lead on how aggressive to be regarding this condition. For more extensive forms, hydroxychloroquine is very, very commonly used. It's incredibly safe. We do need to just check a blood count before starting and then Patients, if they're going to be on it long-term, do need regular eye exams. Hydroxychloroquine can deposit in the back of the eye, and so we just need to watch for that. It doesn't happen quickly, and often what I'll do is I'll get a patient started on it, and if they're tolerating it well and it looks like they might be on it long-term, we'll get the, um, the ophthalmology exam scheduled sometime within that first six months. And this is because sometimes where I am, it's difficult to see the ophthalmologist. But this is basically our first-line treatment for extensive like in planopilaris, and I just want to stress that here we're looking at um, one of the main studies included 27 patients with a 50% response. So again, by no means is this uh, like a panacea of treatments. Like we don't we don't have this wonderful, amazing response for this, but we often will combine it with topical steroids or possibly even the intralesional steroids. Second line therapy is considered methotrexate. Here we have. 16 patients with an 87.5% response, so really great response, but very low number. This is a general immunosuppressant, and it requires monitoring of a blood count as well as liver enzymes. It does have some significant side effects, including some mucosal side effects, so it should be given in conjunction with folic acid. Third-line treatments, cyclosporin, and mycophenolate can be helpful. These are both aminosuppressants. Cyclosporin, we've got 22 patients with about a 72 to 77% response. And for mycophenolate, 33 patients with about a 48% response. Pioglitazone is a really interesting one and is kind of newer on the scene. This is a PPAR gamma, so that peroxisome proliferator activated receptor, um, which I talked about being involved in the pathogenesis of the scarring process. And with this, we're looking at 65 patients with about a 66 to 70% response rate. We often can think about some of these other options. We have less data on these. So topical minoxidil, there really isn't much evidence 
We know that it does a very good job for treating genetic patterned hair loss. In terms of how is it working with lichen planopilaris, we really don't know. This topical medication does have multiple mechanisms of action and we don't completely understand them all. It is something that patients can do that is safe and it's something that they can do that will give them a sense of control over the condition. Again, I would not use this alone, but I would use it with other therapies and it's something I offer to patients, but I don't push them into doing it. It can be a headache. It needs to be applied to the effective areas once to twice a day. For genetic pattern thinning, I usually use it once a day, but for this type of hair loss, I generally recommend twice a day. It can cause some skin irritation, but generally is pretty well tolerated. And most people will not do it because of the just hassle involved in it. Oral finasteride is something we use a lot for men with genetic pattern thinning at a milligram a day, and it's very effective. In women, we tend to need to use higher doses, so two and a half to five milligrams a day. Again, this is commonly used for genetic pattern thinning and seems to be helpful in lichen planopilaris, but we don't quite understand why, and it, it is likely related to this hormone imbalance. Side effects can include, include decreased libido, breast tenderness, breast enlargement, and some depression. In men, we do see something called post-finasteride syndrome. And this is basically, so typically when we stop the medication, when the patient stops the medication, these side effects just go away. But there are a small subset of men where these side effects persist, and they have been reported as persisting up to six years, which can be pretty disturbing, especially when we're thinking about the mood and the sexual side effect. We really don't have enough data in women, and we don't know if this is happening or not in women, but it's something to educate women about. And then this platelet-rich plasma, this is something that is uh, newer to the scene. It's a procedure that's done, again, relatively effectively for genetic patterned thinning, kind of hit or miss when it comes to lichen planopilaris, but it definitely is an option. What is done with this procedure is basically a patient's blood is drawn and spun down at least twice, sometimes more, multiple times, to collect that really dense platelet-rich plasma at the bottom of the tube. This is then extracted from the sample and either injected into the scalp with a, a syringe needle or applied topically after microneedling. With this condition, the microneedling I don't think really is effective at all. It'd be very difficult to get a needle deep enough to allow this, this platelet-rich plasma to have access to the deeper levels of the hair follicle where this inflammation is going. And so I would not recommend somebody see a provider who does the topical application after microneedling. I definitely would insist that a patient have the platelet-rich plasma injected into the scalp. It's typically done every two to four weeks for a total of three to six treatments. We do have a few case reports that suggest benefit might be seen after three to four treatments that have been done about three to four weeks apart or monthly. And this picture is one of those case reports where we actually do see some pretty good involvement and both of these patients had fairly extensive disease. So it's something that's out there and, and could be offered. So most of us here know that low-dose naltrexone is immunomodulating and anti-inflammatory. We have several case series now in the dermatology literature supporting the use of low-dose naltrexone in, specifically in lichen planopilaris. 
The dose is typically between three milligrams and four and a half milligrams a day. And generally it takes between four and nine months to see results. The side effects, as many of you know, can be mild sleep disturbances, generally only in that first week. Nausea and GI upset are rare when patients use the appropriate dose escalation protocols. And uh, most of the time this is very well tolerated. Because lichen planopilaris can be associated with thyroid disease, it's really important to monitor for that, to check TSH, both at the onset of the therapy, but also intermittently. These patients really should be screened at least every couple of years for thyroid with the TSH. And, um, and you know, it's also important before you start is asking patients if they have known thyroid disease. Patients will say sometimes no, and I've had this happen in my practice where one of our residents asked if there was thyroid disease, they checked a TSH, TSH was normal, and they went on with low-dose naltrexone, but they didn't look at the medication list, and the patient actually was on levothyroxine, and within six weeks, the patient was developing symptoms of hyperthyroidism, and we just really had to drop that dose. So it's just something to be aware of. The, this particular case series looked at four patients with refractory LPP. So this LPP that had just not responded to any of the other treatments. They were each treated with naltrexone three milligrams a day, which is a little on the low side, and they all experienced a reduction in itch, decreased clinical evidence of active disease, and decreased disease progression. The benefits were seen within the first two months for all four patients, which is a bit unusual in my experience, and it was very well tolerated with no adverse events. That does not appear to be unusual. I think that's very typical, but usually it takes much longer to see benefit in patients. We also have the first randomized controlled clinical study that looked at 34 patients with lichen planopilaris, so a bigger number, more than four. And these patients all continued topical clobetasol, and they either got a placebo or low-dose naltrexone, three milligrams daily for six months. They were evaluated at baseline and then at two-month intervals for the full six months. And by the end of the study, they really didn't see any benefit in the group receiving the topical clobetasol plus LDN versus the topical clobetasol plus placebo. Again, this is a fairly short duration, six months. You know, if you have about, if you can assume that, that some patients are going to respond fairly quickly, but others may take a longer period of time when you're looking at a group that might have gotten lost in the analysis. And these were all patients who were also using uh, treatment for it. We really don't know how extensive the disease was. In the previous case series, these were all refractory, so we know that it was very difficult disease to treat. We don't know where these patients fell. And so those are just some things to take into consideration when looking at both of these pieces of data. I have used low-dose naltrexone for over 100 patients with lichen planopilaris mostly in combination with topical or interlegional steroids and or hydroxychloroquine. Many of my patients report fewer symptoms of itching, burning, and stinging while on the LDN, which tells us that it's at least having an impact on the inflammatory process, at least some impact on it. It definitely takes several months to work, and because LPP is a self-limited condition that's a difficulty that creates difficulty in evaluating the effect of any treatment, including LDN, because, you know, especially in that case series of four, 
with those four refractory patients, they might have had it for a long time and maybe it was going to burn out on its own and be unlikely that it was all going to burn out within two months of, of starting that low-dose naltrexone, but that could have played a role. And when we looked at that other study, the 34 patients that were randomized, if they had earlier onset disease, you know, they, they probably wouldn't have been in that close to that burnout period. So that's just something to, to take into account. I generally ask my LPP patients to consider being on it for a year in order to know if it's really going to work or not. Some supplements and botanicals that can be helpful. We really have, again, no data on, no specific data on this, but vitamin D is really intimately involved in immune regulation. So it's an important thing to check. I check in all of my autoimmune-related patients with autoimmune-related skin conditions including hair loss, autoimmune-related hair loss, and I aim for a mid-normal range between 50 and 60. Uh, you could also consider botanical 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. Saw palmetto is something that's taken orally. Pumpkin seed oil can be used either orally or topically, and then rosemary oil has benefit in topical application. All three of these are useful for genetic patterned hair loss and have an impact on hormonal the, the kind of hormone issues related to hair loss, and we really don't know if they'd be helpful or not. Certainly, the topical pumpkin seed oil or rosemary oil might be helpful in the same way that that topical minoxidil might be helpful. Moving on to supplements that can be useful, turmeric or curcumin is anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, and has anti-neoplastic effects. The dose is typically 1,500 to 3,000 milligrams a day of turmeric or looking at a half to two milligrams a day of curcumin. One teaspoon is about 2,500 grams of turmeric and also the equivalent to about 200 milligrams of curcumin. So you could take one to two teaspoons a day. It's safe up to 12 grams a day. So you really would have to eat a lot of it before you could get into a potentially concerning range. And we suspect that it's probably safer, safe at even higher doses. We just have the safety studies up to 12 grams a day. No specific studies looking at turmeric and LPP, but definitely an, a potent anti-inflammatory. Medicinal mushrooms can be useful for healthy immune modulation. We know that turkey tail and maitake are rich in beta-glucans. And these are prebiotics that help feed a healthy gut microflora. Shiitake and cordyceps have antimicrobial properties, which may help decrease pathogenic microbes in the gut. And so this, these medicinal mushrooms might be acting to really optimize the gut microflora to prevent leaky gut and to that which could potentially could minimize autoimmunity, but we really don't know for sure. Maca root is a really interesting herbal tonic that helps with hormone balancing. I especially use this in postmenopausal women at a dose of 1,500 to 3,000 milligrams a day. It will increase libido. Sometimes that's some, uh, something that's welcomed and sometimes not, but it's something you really need to educate your patients about because it's known to do that. And that's what herbalists have used this for for a very long time. Again, just something to offer patients. Whether or not they work, we really don't know for sure. And I usually offer them in conjunction with other treatment So to wrap things up, lichen planopilaris is an autoimmune-mediated scarring hair loss. It's often associated with symptoms of itching, burning, or stinging of the scalp. It typically burns out between six months to several years, and the course is highly unpredictable in terms of how long it's going to last and how much hair a person might lose. Treatment can include lifestyle choices, some medicinal immunomodulation, including immunosuppressant, as well as low-dose naltrexone, 
and potentially supplements and botanicals that may or may not help, but certainly can be offered in conjunction with other treatment options. I hope you've learned something and that you'd have enjoyed this talk. Thank you for spending this time with me. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.